If you have your Bibles, I invite you to grab them and turn with me to the book of Romans. Uh, and as always, as a reminder, uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, there should be a blue one on the end of your pew or maybe the pew in front or behind you. Uh, feel free to grab one of those and use it this morning. Or if you have a, a phone or a device with you that has a Bible app, that is also acceptable. Uh, this morning, as as Paige has, has taught and told our, our children, this morning we are continuing in Romans 8. Uh, we began this study in Romans back in July and have been slowly making our way through this book. Uh, we began, I was thinking about it yesterday, and began Romans 8, I believe, on Palm Sunday. And so if you've been with us uh, over the last little bit over a month, we've been slowly making our way through this very rich and deep chapter of, of this book. And so this morning we are, are coming to verses 28, 29, and 30, but I want to back up and read to you beginning in verse 18 and reading through our verses this morning. So look with me in Romans 8, beginning in verse 18. This is what Paul writes. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see... We wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And He who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and those whom he predestined, he also called and those whom he called, he also justified and those whom he justified, he also glorified. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Pray with me. Father, this morning we have much to be thankful for. One of those one of those many blessings that we can count, especially this morning, is the faithful love, the unconditional love, the encouragement, the support, the teaching of mothers. So, Father, we are thankful for the women in our lives who have led us and loved us, whether they are biological mothers or not, or spiritual mothers. God, you have placed older women within the church and within and among your people to guide, to teach, to instruct, to encourage, to love. 
younger followers of you. So, Father, this morning we are thankful for the blessings of, of Mom. And as we come to your word this morning, we come thankful for the blessings of Romans. The encouragement that it brings by reminding us that even in the worst of situations, you are working for good. So, Father, this morning, as we, as we study your word this morning, as I proclaim your word this morning, we, we ask and we seek for your help, for your enlightenment, for your illumination, God, that we would understand what is written here and that our lives would be encouraged and exhorted and refreshed by, by these words. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, before we uh, dive into this word this morning, let me let me first kind of give you an update on the next few weeks and, and what's ahead of us for us as a church. Uh, so Paige and I will be leaving this afternoon and we'll spend this week on vacation uh, with some friends of ours. Uh, we're, we're thankful for, for the opportunity just to get away and, and refresh and, and be, be renewed. And then for the next three Sundays after today, uh, I will not be preaching to you. I will be here and, and be in worship with you. But I will not be preaching. Uh, with consistency, encouragement, and support, uh, I will be. I have asked several of uh, three students from Reformed Theological Seminary in Charlotte to come and preach to you. And so this accomplishes uh, two goals, really. Uh, one, it gives these students preaching experience as they prepare and are getting ready to, to be involved in full-time ministry. Uh, one of the things that, that they need uh, in a lot of ways is time in pulpits. And so this will give them opportunity to grow in their preaching and to, to bless you in, in what God has been working and showing them through his word. So I'm excited that they'll get to come and, and speak and open up God's word to you over the next three weeks. The second thing this accomplishes is it also allows me time to continue writing for my doctoral project. Uh, the goal, the plan is for me to graduate in December. And in order for that to happen, there's quite a bit of work that's still left to be done. And so for the next three weeks, uh, since history has, has encouraged and supported me to go have this time to get some writing done in advance of that. So I'm very grateful for that. So that's just, that's what's coming up in the next three weeks. Let me encourage you, that does not mean for the next three weeks, pastor's not preaching, so enjoy your Sunday. But come, come be a part of, of worship. Uh, we will still be here as a family. We will be here in worship and, and hear from, from God's word from these students. So come and be a part of it with us. But this morning, as we turn our attention now to Romans 8, we, we come possibly to my favorite three verses in this entire chapter. Because within these verses is a promise. Uh, it is a promise that even in the midst of suffering, or, or perhaps especially in the midst of suffering, as Christians, you and I can trust that God is at work. And that this suffering will not destroy us but that God will turn it into good. And we'll look at what that good truly means today. Because this passage breaks down really quite simply. There's just three verses, and so we're going to handle the first verse by itself. In verse 28, we are given this promise that we can hold on to. But I, I want to encourage you to hold on to this promise today as we look at it, but I want to do it carefully. Because so many have attempted to grasp this promise while also missing the truth and the application of that promise. And they end up holding on to the wind as the promise slips through their fingers. 
And then the second thing I want to do is, is look at verses 29 and 30, what many have called the golden chain of salvation. Here in these verses is this process, this purpose, that in your life as a believer, God is working through this process, down this chain, link by link. And it is a process that if God has begun, he will most certainly complete. That there is no breaking this chain. So that's the, the plan. That's where we're headed this morning. And so let's begin at verse 28. This wonderful promise with dangerous misapplication. So verse 28. So what's, what's the promise? If we're breaking down the sentence, if you're diagramming sentences, as, as our students typically do in the classroom, uh, the promise, is the main sentence, is quite simple. All things work together for good. And Paul begins this verse by saying this is something we already know. It's not a new promise. It's not a new arena or an avenue for faith to grow. This is something that both the Roman church and we ourselves already know to be true. And he could be pointing to a lot of things that we know. He could be pointing to personal experience within the Roman church. Or, quite simply, because Paul was, was Jewish, he could be pointing back to the Old Testament. This is a promise that we've seen from the very beginning in Genesis. As Joseph and his struggles with his brothers, how his brothers sold him into slavery, how his brothers worked all of this evil against his brother. And Joseph suffered under, under great stress, never doing the wrong thing. Suffering at the hand of Potiphar, being forgotten about in prison. All of these things that happened in Joseph's life. And yet at the end of it, as he's standing in a position of authority and power over those brothers who did this evil to him, Joseph says in Genesis 50, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. This is exactly what Paul is saying, that, that in all things, God is working for good. And we see in the immediate context of Romans 8, we know that Paul has been discussing the, both the, the gospel assurances that we have in, in Christ on one hand and, and suffering on the other. And his point has been to, to show you that suffering cannot scratch the surface. It cannot put a dent in the assurances that we have in Christ. And if we were to give a, a quick recap of what we've seen these, of these assurances in this chapter, we've seen the assurance of salvation from the very first verse. That there is no condemnation for those in Christ. We've seen the assurance of life that the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead now gives life to your mortal body. We've seen the assurance of belonging. That we who have the Spirit have been given not a spirit of slavery, but a spirit of adoption by whom we cry, Abba, Father. That we, have, that we are children of God and if children, then heirs. Heirs to the throne of grace. Fellow heirs with Christ. But Paul adds there at the end of verse 17 that if we are heirs of Christ, we, it is provided that we suffer with Him in order that we might also be glorified with Him. And so in our suffering, we have this assurance of hope that creation alongside of us is groaning in the hope that one day all things will be made new. And so we rest in this hope and we cling to this hope and this hope drives us forward in times of suffering. But not only do we have hope, we also have the assurance of help. We looked at this last week, how the Spirit helps us in our weakness, praying for us with groanings too deep for words, interceding for the saints according to the will of God. 
And what Paul is saying, and what he continues to say here, is that suffering in this world as believers will drive you towards Christ. It will set your gaze on eternity in the hope that one day eternity will come. That He will come. And in the meantime, we have the Spirit of Christ dwelling within us, both reminding us of these promises, interceding for us in our weakness. And so as believers, we can endure, and we are called to endure great suffering because we have this hope and this help all throughout us. But in this promise of verse 28, Paul moves beyond hope and beyond help to show you purpose. So often when we endure suffering, so often when, when, when we are hurting, we want to know why. We want to know what the result of this will be. We end up asking our que- ourselves the question in the middle of suffering that we know this suffering will eventually end, but where will I be standing when it ends? Or better yet, will I be standing when this ends? And so Paul gives us this purpose-driven promise that all things, all suffering, all hardship, all struggle, even all sin, work together for good. And it's important that we understand that these things don't work themselves for good. Your sin is not magically appearing and working for your good, but that it is God working in these situations and through these situations and he, he is sovereignly reigning over your life working and turning and transforming even your sins into your good. And this is a promise that as believers we need. John Stott said that Romans 8.28 is, is surely one of the best known texts in the Bible. On this passage believers of every age and place have stayed their minds It has been likened to a pillow on which we rest our weary heads. You see, believer, your life is not a random mess. The sufferings that come to you are not random and they are not purposeless. God is working in the midst of your suffering to bring about your good. Believe this promise and rest on it like a pillow. Because that is what it is. But I think in, in light of this, this prom- we need to understand that this promise does not apply to everyone. And this is the hard thing for us to grasp. The, the fact is, is that God is not working for the good of all people. Paul gives two qualifications for whom this promise applies. He says, for those who love God and for those who have been called according to his purpose. I mean, both of these qualifications really point to the same group of people. It's the people of God. Believers. The church. Both individually and corporately. God is working all things for good for His people. And I, I, I want to I sit here for a moment, if we can. Because this is a, a hard thing. and something that makes us a little bit uncomfortable. And that's okay. It's okay to be uncomfortable with the truth of Scripture. And when we find places in Scripture that make us uncomfortable, we are tempted to run away, to skip over, to jump past it. Don't do that. If you find yourself at a place of discomfort as you read God's Word, sit there for a moment. Embrace that discomfort and see what is being taught. 
See what is being given to you. Did you see, I, I believe that as a church, we should welcome anyone and everyone to come and be with us. We should encourage outsiders to join us for worship. We should encourage those of other faiths to be a part of fundraisers and, and join us for dinner at our homes and, and engage with us in discussion and debate. We should include as many people as we can and as much as we can. But, we must draw lines where Scripture draws lines. And there's a reason that as we take communion together every week, we, we pass it out, but we also say it with the caveat, if you are not a believer, this is not for you. The promises of God belong to the people of God and no one else. Because you see, we could put Paul's words in 828, we could put it a different way. If you don't love God, and if you are not called according to His purpose, God is not working all things in your life for your good. I mean, optimism has its place at certain times and, and, and situations in our lives. But to convince yourself that it's all going to be okay in the end, and yet not have Christ as your advocate, and yet not have Christ as your Savior, and yet not have Christ as your King, to convince yourself that it's all going to be okay is not optimism, it's foolishness. So church, let us hold on to this promise very, very tightly. Let us rest in this. But let's also be careful not to apply it to people in situations that it does not apply to. Because it's not for everybody. But it's for the people of God. It's for believers. For those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. If you're a believer, that's you. If you're not a believer, it's not you. That being said, I, I think we also need to address some errors that have been made in applying this promise, especially among Christians. I mean, there's, there's probably more errors, but I, I count this week at least three traps, three pitfalls that come with this promise when we are trying to apply 828 to our lives. The first is this. I don't love God enough, so this suffering is not being turned into good. And this is often said when, when periods of suffering are, are very extended. When hard times have gone on longer than we thought they would, longer than we anticipated. We, we thought that it would end, but it just kept going. We thought the pain would cease. We thought the cancer would heal. We thought the hurt and the weakness would fade. But here we are, weeks and months and years down the road. And all of it's still there. And it's in those moments we begin to believe this lie and this promise then is twisted into a curse. This suffering is still here. It's not being turned into good. It's not being transformed. Therefore, I must not love God as I should. I must not be loving Him enough in order for Him to work and turn this suffering into good. My, my love for Him must be too fickle, too shallow, too missing and lacking. And that's why He's punishing me and allowing me to sit in this suffering rather than turn it for good. Christian, I said this last week, and I'm going to say it again this week, and probably several more times in the weeks to come. 
God is not limited by your weakness. Because the reality is, is that you will never in this life love God as you should. Your love will always be fickle. It will always be shallow. It will always be lacking in some way. But God is not limited in His ability to transform your suffering into good by your inability to love Him. He is not limited by your weakness. And He does not rely on your love of Him to work for good in your life. The reality is, Christian, your love for God depends on God's love for you. 1 John 4 says it clearly. We love because He first loved us. And so now you're maybe sitting there thinking, well, how do I know that I love God? How do I know that, if I, that I fit this promise? Do you believe Him? Do you trust in the finished work of Christ? Do you rest in His promises? I'm not saying it's a perfect faith. I'm not saying your faith is as strong as a mountain. I'm, I'm saying even as, as softly and feebly and weakly as you can muster, do you believe and you love. And our choir sang it just a moment ago. Not, I will hold Christ fast. They're not, I will cling on to Him, but He will hold me. He will cling to me. He will hold me fast. Second pitfall of this verse. It's okay. God's going to make everything better. This is often said when, when we pass over someone's hurt and pass over someone's suffering very quickly. I think if John Scott compared this verse to a pillow on which we rest our weary heads, when it is spoken at the wrong time, that pillow becomes a weapon that smothers those suffering. You see, I do believe this verse provides comfort to those suffering. I, I truly do. But I also believe that timing plays a very key and significant role in how we speak and apply this verse. You see, when that suffering is brand new, when those scars are still gaping wounds, well-meaning brothers and sisters have brought out this verse and it can feel and maybe even has felt to you as salt being poured over your hurt. I mean, I, I can be honest here. I am not the greatest at this. I am very, very guilty of doing what I'm telling you now not to do. But sometimes when suffering is fresh, we just aren't always ready to hear the promises of God. And that's okay. You see, what hurting people really need is someone to hurt with them before they encourage them. So before you begin to apply this verse and speak this promise to someone who's hurting, make sure that you have entered their pain first. Make sure that you have sat down in the dirt and cried with them before you begin preaching to them. Enter their pain, embrace their suffering alongside of them, and then down the road as you are walking with them, encourage them with these words. What I'm saying, Christian, is to be wise in how you speak. And when you speak, Romans 8.28. Use wisdom. Lastly, the last pitfall. The good that God is working is how I define good. And this is easily the, the biggest one. It has turned this 
promise of God into a prosperity preacher's life verse. How many ministries of health, wealth, and prosperity have been centered on Romans 8.28 foolishly? Because the reality is, when it says all things work for good, you are not the one who defines good. Neither am I. We don't define good in appropriate or truthful ways. God does. God is the one who's working, therefore God is the one who defines the good that he is transforming this suffering into. He determines what is good, and he determines how to turn suffering into that good. So this promise does not mean that if you suffer, God will one day make you rich or healthy or famous. The reality is, is in a lot of ways, suffering, even extended periods of terrible suffering, may simply result in your faith being stronger. And that may be the only good that comes from that time of suffering, but hear me on this, Christian, that is still good. The refining of your faith, the strengthening of your faith during times of suffering is worth it. It is a good that is worthy of the suffering. But more than that, I think this promise does not mean that you will necessarily see that good in this life. The ultimate good, the only certain good that we can claim and apply in Romans 8.28, the only good that we can know without a doubt that God is working through our suffering is that he is going to bring about an eternal good for us. Does he sometimes, by his grace, bring good into our lives today? Absolutely. But that's not the promise here. That's not the guarantee here. Paul is pointing your attention to the good that exists in eternity. And I know that to be true because of the next two verses. This golden chain. You see, I'm, I'm all for favorite verses and memorizing scripture to recall it when we need it. You should memorize Romans 8.28. But you should memorize with it verse 29 and 30. Because I hope that you can see the danger that comes when we forcefully, often violently, rip verse 8.28 out of the context of Romans 8. And then we have the audacity to say, well, this is what it means to me. As if that's some clear all of, yeah, that, then it has to be true. And the first rule in applying Scripture to our lives is this. No verse of Scripture can ever mean to you what it never meant to the original recipients of it. Which means that when Paul wrote Romans, he wrote it to the Roman church. And if the Roman church did not apply 828 in this particular way, then you cannot do it either. It can only mean for you what it was meant for them. And the beauty of God's word is that it does. It means for you what it meant for them. It means that God is working and suffering for your good. You see, the good that Paul has in mind here is glory. In fact, the, the true meaning of Romans 8.28 is that in all things, in all suffering, in sin, in struggle, in hardship, and in blessing, God is working all of these things to bring you into His eternal glory. And in these next two verses, he outlines this process by which God works for good. That's the thing. When we, when we rip 8.28 out of context, 
And we say, God works all things for good. We should believe that. We should rest in it. The immediate question is, how? How does God work all things for good? How does he turn suffering into good? And the foolishness, the blindness of our heart has missed the fact that Paul's given us the process. He tells you exactly how. By giving you these, these, this golden chain. And, and the, the beautiful thing about this chain, just like an actual steel chain, Paul links these words one to another to another to another. Five words in succession. And you cannot have one without all five. You, you do not get to grab hold of one link of the chain without the entire chain coming with it. And this chain is unbreakable. So if you are able to grab hold of one, then all five links come together. And so what I want to do here is, is really just walk through these five links, five words. And we're going to walk through them word by word. And I realize, say it, I give a disclaimer here as we walk through them, because I realize that some of these words may touch a nerve or two. They may have some connotations that you're not comfortable with. Let's, let's put those aside for just a moment. What I want you to do is simply hear the word. Hear God's word. Because that's what it is. Take it as it is. And let God's word speak for itself. Especially concerning the first two links in this chain. I think we tend to hold on to, to we tend to hold more onto one over another. But both are important for us to grasp the beauty of this chain of salvation. So, the first link. The first link is foreknew. For those whom he foreknew. I think there's really uh, two options for us understanding this word and what it means. Foreknowledge simply means that he knows before. Before creation. Before time began, God knew. And as we understand this word, there's two options for how we interpret it. So the first is that God knew before creation who would believe in Jesus and become his people. And he was aware. He knew. He could see and look into the future and say, these will be my people. And I know them. I can see their face ahead of time. I knew them before. And if we understand it this way, then often when Paul connects this word to predestined next, then those who God predestined are not those that God chooses to save, but rather those whom he foreknew would already believe. And so God looks into the future and he says, I know you, I, I see that you will believe in me, therefore I'm going to predestine you because I can see that you will believe. That's option one. And if I'm honest, I can put my cards on the table here. I'm not, that is a shallow view of this word. It's very, very surface level, and it's interpreted this way to get around our discomfort of predestination. Because the second option is much deeper and much fuller and, and actually connects back to the Old Testament in a much greater way. Because you see, this word for new, in Greek, it is simply the word no with the prefix pro attached to it. Know before. So when we, are, when we are proactive, for example, we are acting before something happens. And so it's simply Paul saying he knew before. But that root word, that know word, is so much deeper and such a richer word than just cognitive awareness. It's so much deeper than just knowledge of or knowledge about. 
So think of how the Bible talks about the relationship between a husband and wife. When they conceive and have children. It doesn't, it doesn't display and describe the, the events of that union, but it simply says, for Adam knew Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to a son. For Abraham knew Sarah, and she conceived and gave birth to a son. Over and over, it's just the same word. He knew her. This knowledge exists within a covenant relationship. And we see it in the same way that God interacts with His people Israel in the Old Testament. Does God know all the nations? Absolutely. He's aware of all the nations. He knows the hairs of every single human being that has ever lived. But for Israel, He not only knows of them, not only knows about them, but He knows them. He knows in a way that He loves them in this context of a covenant relationship with them. God knows all the nations, but He especially knows and He especially loves His people because they are His. And He has this covenant with them. I think this understanding also fits the words that God spoke, for example, to Jeremiah the prophet in Jeremiah 1. He says, Before you were born, Jeremiah, I knew you. And not I knew of you, not I knew about you, not I knew what would happen to you, I knew you. And before you were born, I appointed you a prophet to the nation. It is because of God's covenant love that He set on Jeremiah, that He called Jeremiah to be a prophet. Not because He knew that Jeremiah would want to be a prophet one day. Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet. He didn't want to be a prophet. He spent his entire life crying over his people. And yet God called him before he was born and appointed him and set him apart because he knew him. Christian, God not only knew of you before you were born, but he loved you before you were born. He set his covenant love. He set his affection. He set his heart on you before you even took your first breath. He foreknew you. He knew you and put His love on you before time began. That's link one. Paul takes this foreknowledge and he says, those whom God foreknew, and he connects it to the next link, He predestined. And there's so much negative connotation with this predestined word. So just clear all of that noise. Take the word at face value. Because you cannot understand the predestination of God without understanding the foreknowledge of God. And Paul links them together for this reason. If God loved you before you were born, if He loved you with this unbreaking, always and forever love before you took a breath, then He has also set in motion His plan, His will of salvation for your life. Before you were born. Before time began, this plan was in effect and was set and determined. Because the reality is, is that God does not allow those that He sets His covenant love on to fall by the wayside. But He has chosen to love you, and in that choosing to love you, He has set Himself to save you. Paul says that He predestined you to be conformed to the image of His Son. 
This means that in his foreknowing love of you, he has decided, he has chosen to take you in all of your sins and failures and all of your mistakes and brokenness and to make you holy and righteous and blameless like his son. This is his plan for your life, believer. He has said it. He has predetermined it to be this path for you and nothing, not even your choices, are capable of stopping God's plan for your life. I'll say this last thing and we'll move on to the next link. If you, as sinful, as weak, as frail, as small and finite as you are, as we are, if your choices are able to stop the sovereign, omnipotent, omniscient plans of God, Who's really God in that scenario? If your plans have the power to stop His plan, who's really God? I think in, those, in that mindset, we have a much higher view of ourselves and a much lower view of God than the Scriptures teach. If He is sovereign, then He can do that. And sovereign He is. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined. Next link, those whom he predestined, he called. You see, predestination points us to God's decision to save you before time began. This calling points us to God acting within your life to bring you to himself. This is what God does. He foreknows you, He predestines you, and then in your life, as you are living and breathing and walking among His creation, God is at work drawing you, calling you to Himself. And He does this by using His people to proclaim the gospel to you. If you're here this morning and you're a Christian, you are a Christian because at some point in your life, the people of God proclaimed the message of God to you. And you heard it, and you believed it. And in this calling... In this proclamation, it's God calling you. He is inviting you. He is drawing you in to himself. And this calling is effectual. It does not fail ever. When God calls you, you come. Those he called, he justified. We know that justification comes by faith alone. And this calling of God and the faith of man, these two things are not mutually exclusive. They do not happen apart from one another. Which means that when God calls you, He also gives you faith to believe Him. And through your faith and through His calling, He justifies you, declaring you righteous in Christ. And lastly, those whom He justified, He glorified. This is the finish line. This is the final link in the chain. This is your eternal glory. You see, this, this is the good that God is working in all things. He is bringing you through suffering. He is bringing you through struggle. He is bringing you through sin and through failure and through brokenness so that you will one day share in His glory forever. And again, the wonderful truth about this being a chain, a golden chain of salvation, is that this is a chain that cannot be broken. If you grab hold of one of these links, you have it all. And so, for us, at this present stage of history, 
as believers, we are holding on to the first four of these things. And we are waiting for that fifth one. But believe me when I tell you, Christian, that fifth one will come. You will be glorified. Let me land the plane here. I know that we're, we're, going, we're running out of time, but... Christian, I, I know two things to be certain about your life. First, you will suffer. You will face trials of various times. You will hurt. You will groan under the curse of sin in this world. And that's a hard truth to grasp, but it is one you must grasp all the same. Suffering is unavoidable in a world that is saturated and stained with sin. And you will suffer. You will hurt. That's a certainty. But the second thing that I know to be true is this. That God is working in all things, even and especially your sufferings, even your sins, even your trials, to bring about the greatest good that you could possibly receive from Him. His eternal glory. Have you ever wondered why so many of the New Testament writers encourage the church and encourage Christians to rejoice in suffering? Paul says it. Peter says it. James says it. Consider it joy when you suffer trials of various times. Rejoice in suffering. They all say it. Why should you, or rather, why can you rejoice in suffering? Because you know where the road ends. You know where he's going. Where he's leading. You know that in this suffering, in this hardship, in this time of extreme sorrow and pain and anxiety and heartache, that in suffering, good is coming. And I know this. I know both of these things to be sure. Because Paul knew both of these things to be sure. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. And those whom He predestined, He called. And those whom He called, He justified. And those whom He justified, He glorified. Glory is coming, believer. Believe it. Pray with me. Father, we're thankful for your word and thankful for these promises that we can cling to. Help us to cling to them as you cling tightly to us. And I pray that in the difficulty of your word and the difficulty of your passage of these, of these passages that we would understand and that we would believe what you have written for us. Help us to cling to these truths and to rest in them and to encourage each other with these promises. That you, our God and King, are working in all things for our good to bring us into your glory. And there is no greater good for us than that. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Uh, as we respond every week to the preaching of God's Word, uh, we do so by taking communion together. And so Ron is...